Chapter Eleven, Part Two of A Diary from Dixie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Laurieann Walden. A Diary from Dixie by Mary Chestnut. Chapter Eleven, Columbia, South Carolina, Part Two. March Twelfth. In the naval battle the other day, we had twenty-five guns in all. The enemy had fifty-four in the Cumberland, forty-four in the St. Lawrence, besides a fleet of gunboats filled with rifled cannon. Why not? They can have as many as they please. No pent-up Utica contracts their powers, the whole boundless world being theirs to recruit in. Ours is only this one little spot of ground, the blockade, or stockade, which hems us in with only the sky open to us. And for all that, how tender-footed and cautious they are as they draw near. An anonymous letter purports to answer Colonel Chestnut's address to South Carolinians now in the Army of the Potomac. The man says, All that Bosch is no good. He knows lots of people whose fathers were notorious Tories in our war for independence and made fortunes by selling their country. Their sons have the best places, and they are cowards and traitors still. Names are given, of course. Floyd and Pillow are suspended from their commands because of Fort Donelson. The people of Tennessee demand a like fate for Albert Sidney Johnston. They say he is stupid. Can human folly go further than this Tennessee madness? Footnote. John D. Floyd, who had been governor of Virginia from 1850 to 1853, became Secretary of War in 1857. He was first in command at Fort Donelson. Gideon J. Pillow had been a major general of volunteers in the Mexican War and was second in command at Fort Donelson. He and Floyd escaped from the fort when it was invested by Grant, leaving General Buckner to make the surrender. End footnote. I did Mrs. Blank a kindness. I told the women when her name came up that she was childless now, but that she had lost three children. I hated to leave her all alone. Women have such a contempt for a childless wife. Now they will be all sympathy and goodness. I took away her reproach among women. March 13th. Mr. Chestnut fretting and fuming. From the poor old blind bishop downward, everybody is besetting him to let off students, theological and other, from going into the army. One comfort is that the boys will go. Mr. Chestnut answers, Wait until you have saved your country before you make preachers and scholars. When you have a country, there will be no lack of divines, students, scholars, to adorn and purify it. He says he is a one-idea man. That idea is to get every possible man into the ranks. Professor Leconte is an able auxiliary. He has undertaken to supervise and carry on the powder-making enterprise, the very first attempted in the Confederacy, and Mr. Chestnut is proud of it. It is a brilliant success, thanks to Leconte. Footnote. Joseph Leconte, who afterward arose to much distinction as a geologist and writer of textbooks on geology. He died in 1901, while he was connected with the University of California. His work at Columbia was to manufacture, on a large scale, medicines for the Confederate Army, his laboratory being the main source of supply. In Professor Leconte's autobiography, published in 1903, are several chapters devoted to his life in the South. End footnote. Mr. Chestnut receives anonymous letters urging him to arrest the judge as seditious. They say he is a dangerous and disaffected person. His abuse of Jeff Davis and the council is rabid. Mr. Chestnut laughs and throws the letters into the fire. 
Disaffected to Jeff Davis, says he. Disaffected to the council, that don't count. He knows what he is about. He would not injure his country for the world. Read Uncle Tom's Cabin again. These Negro women have a chance here that women have nowhere else. They can redeem themselves. The impropers can. They can marry decently, and nothing is remembered against these colored ladies. It is not a nice topic, but Mrs. Stowe revels in it. How delightfully pharisaic a feeling it must be to rise superior, and fancy we are so degraded as to defend and like to live with such degraded creatures around us, such men as Legree and his women. The best way to take Negroes to your heart is to get as far away from them as possible. As far as I can see, Southern women do all that missionaries could do to prevent and alleviate evils. The social evil has not been suppressed in Old England or in New England, in London or in Boston. People in those places expect more virtue from a plantation African than they can ensure in practice among themselves with all their own high moral surroundings, light, education, training, and support. Lady Mary Montague says, Only men and women at last. Male and female created he them, says the Bible. There are cruel, graceful, beautiful mothers of angelic Evas, north as well as south, I dare say. The northern men and women who came here were always hardest, for they expected an African to work and behave as a white man. We do not. I have often thought from observation, truly, that perfect beauty hardens the heart. And as to grace, what so graceful as a cat, a tigress, or a panther? Much love, admiration, worship hardens an idol's heart. It becomes utterly callous and selfish. It expects to receive all and to give nothing. It even likes the excitement of seeing people suffer. I speak now of what I have watched with horror and amazement. Topsies I have known, but none that were beaten or ill-used. Evas are mostly in the heaven of Mrs. Stowe's imagination. People can't love things dirty, ugly, and repulsive, simply because they ought to do so. But they can be good to them at a distance. That's easy. You see, I cannot rise very high. I can only judge by what I see. March 14th. Thank God for a ship. It has run the blockade with arms and ammunition. There are no Negro sexual relations half so shocking as Mormonism. And yet the United States government makes no bones of receiving Mormons into its sacred heart. Mr. Venable said England held her hand over the malignant and the turbaned Turk to save and protect him, slaves, seraglio, and all. But she rolls up the whites of her eyes at us when slavery, bad as it is, is stepping out into freedom every moment through Christian civilization. They do not grudge the Turk even his bag and bosphorus privileges. To a recalcitrant wife it is, here yawns the sack, there rolls the sea, etc. And France, the bold, the brave, the ever free, she has not been so tender-footed in Algiers. But then, the you-are-another argument is a shabby one. You see, says Mary Preston sagaciously, we are white Christian descendants of Huguenots and Cavaliers, and they expect of us different conduct. Went in Mrs. Preston's Landau to bring my boarding-school girls here to dine. At my door met J.F., who wanted me then and there to promise to help him with his commission, or put him in the way of one. At the carriage steps I was handed in by Gus Smith, who wants his brother made commissary. The beauty of it all is they think I have some influence. 
and I have not a particle. The subject of Mr. Chestnut's military affairs, promotions, etc., is never mentioned by me. March 15th. When we came home from Richmond, there stood Warren Nelson, propped up against my door, lazily waiting for me, the handsome creature. He said he meant to be heard, so I walked back with him to the drawing-room. They are wasting their time dancing attendance on me. I cannot help them. Let them shoulder their musket and go to the wars like men. After tea came Mars Kit. He said for a talk, but that Mr. Preston would not let him have, for Mr. Preston had arrived some time before him. Mr. Preston said Mars Kit thought it bad form to laugh. After that you may be sure a laugh from Mars Kit was secured. Again and again he was forced to laugh with a will. I reversed Oliver Wendell Holmes's good resolution never to be as funny as he could. I did my very utmost. Mr. Venable interrupted the fun, which was fast and furious, with the very best of bad news. Newburn shelled and burned cotton, turpentine, everything. There were five thousand North Carolinians in the fray, twelve thousand Yankees. Now there stands Goldsboro. One more step and we are cut in two. The railroad is our backbone, like the Blue Ridge and the Alleghanies, with which it runs parallel. So many discomforts, no wonder we are downhearted. Mr. Venable thinks as we do, Garnett is our most thorough scholar, Lamar the most original, and the cleverest of our men. L.Q.C. Lamar. Time fails me to write all his name. Then there is R.M.T. Hunter. Musco Russell Garnett and his northern wife. That match was made at my house in Washington when Garnett was a member of the United States Congress. March 17th. Back to the Congaree house to await my husband, who has made a rapid visit to the Wateree region. As we drove up, Mr. Chestnut said, Did you see the stare of respectful admiration E.R. bestowed upon you, so curiously prolonged? I could hardly keep my countenance. Yes, my dear child, I feel the honor of it, though my individual self goes for nothing in it. I am the wife of the man who has the appointing power just now, with so many commissions to be filled. I am nearly forty, and they do my understanding the credit to suppose I can be made to believe they admire my mature charms. They think they fool me into thinking that they believe me charming. There is hardly any farce in the world more laughable. Last night a house was set on fire. Last week, two houses. The red cock crows in the barn. Our troubles thicken indeed when treachery comes from that dark quarter. When the President first offered Johnston Pettigrew a brigadier generalship, his answer was, Not yet. Too many men are ahead of me who have earned their promotion in the field. I will come after them, not before. So far I have done nothing to merit reward, etc. He would not take rank when he could get it. I fancy he may cool his heels now waiting for it. He was too high and mighty. There was another conscientious man, Burnett of Kentucky. He gave up his regiment to his lieutenant-colonel when he found the lieutenant-colonel could command the regiment, and Burnett could not maneuver it in the field. He went into the fight simply as an aide to Floyd. Modest merit just now is at a premium. William Gilmore Sims is here, read us his last poetry, have forgotten already what it was about. It was not tiresome, however, and that is a great thing when people will persist in reading their own rhymes. 
I did not hear what Mr. Preston was saying. The last piece of Richmond news, Mr. Chestnut said as he went away, and he looked so fagged out I asked no questions. I knew it was bad. At daylight there was a loud knocking at my door. I hurried on a dressing-gown and flew to open the door. Mrs. Chestnut, Mrs. M. says, please don't forget her son. Mr. Chestnut, she hears, has come back. Please get her son a commission. He must have an office. I shut the door in the servant's face. If I had the influence these foolish people attribute to me, why should I not help my own? I have a brother, two brothers-in-law, and no end of kin, all gentlemen privates, and privates they would stay to the end of time before they said a word to me about commissions. After a long talk, we were finally disgusted, and the men went off to the bulletin board. Whatever else it shows, good or bad, there is always woe for some house in the killed and wounded. We have need of stout hearts. I feel a sinking of mine as we drive near the board. March 18th. My war archon is beset for commissions, and somebody says, for every one given, you make one ingrate and a thousand enemies. As I entered Miss Mary Stark's, I whispered, He has promised to vote for Lewis. What radiant faces! To my friend, Miss Mary said, Your son-in-law, what is he doing for his country? He is a tax collector. Then spoke up the stout old girl, Look at my cheek, it is red with blushing for you. A great, hale, hearty young man. Fie on him, fie on him, for shame. Tell his wife, run him out of the house with a broomstick, send him down to the coast at least. Fancy my cheeks. I could not raise my eyes to the poor lady so mercilessly assaulted. My face was as hot with compassion as the outspoken Miss Mary pretended hers to be with vicarious mortification. Went to see sweet and saintly Mrs. Bartow. She read us a letter from Mississippi. Not so bad. More men there than the enemy suspected, and torpedoes to blow up the wretches when they came. Next to see Mrs. Izzard. She had with her a relative just from the north. This lady had asked Seward for passports, and he told her to hold on a while. The road to South Carolina will soon be open to all, open and safe. Today Mrs. Arthur Hayne heard from her daughter that Richmond is to be given up. Mrs. Buell is her daughter. Met Mr. Chestnut, who said, New Madrid has been given up. I do not know any more than the dead where New Madrid is. It is bad all the same, this giving up. I can't stand it. The hemming-in process is nearly complete. The ring of fire is almost unbroken. Footnote. New Madrid, Missouri, had been under siege since March 3, 1862. End footnote. Mr. Chestnut's Negroes offered to fight for him if he would arm them. He pretended to believe them. He says one man cannot do it. The whole country must agree to it. He would trust such as he would select, and he would give so many acres of land and his freedom to each one as he enlisted. Mrs. Albert Rett came for an office for her son John. I told her Mr. Chestnut would never propose a kinsman for an office, but if any one else would bring him forward, he would vote for him, certainly, as he is so eminently fit for position. Now he is a private. March 19th. He who runs may read. Conscription means that we are in a tight place. This war was a volunteer business. Tomorrow conscription begins, the dernier raison. 
The President has remodeled his cabinet, leaving Bragg for North Carolina. His war minister is Randolph of Virginia. A union man par excellence, Watts of Alabama, is attorney general. And now, too late by one year, when all the mechanics are in the army, Mallory begins to telegraph Captain Ingram to build ships at any expense. We are locked in and cannot get the requisites for naval architecture, says a magniloquent person. Henry Frost says all hands wink at cotton going out. Why not send it out and buy ships? Every now and then there is a holocaust of cotton burning, says the magniloquent. Conscription has waked the Rip Van Winkles. The streets of Columbia were never so crowded with men. To fight, and to be made to fight, are different things. To my small wits, whenever people were persistent, united, and rose in their might, no general, however great, succeeded in subjugating them. Have we not swamps, forests, rivers, mountains, every natural barrier? The Carthaginians begged for peace because they were a luxurious people, and could not endure the hardship of war, though the enemy suffered as sharply as they did. Factions among themselves is the rock on which we split. Now for the great soul who is to rise up and lead us, why tarry his footsteps? March 20th. The Merrimack is now called the Virginia. I think these changes of names so confusing and so senseless. Like the French Royal Bengal Tiger, National Tiger, etc. Rue this, and next day, rue that, the very days and months assemble, and nothing signified. I was lying on the sofa in my room, and two men, slowly walking up and down the corridor, talked aloud as if necessarily all rooms were unoccupied at this midday hour. I asked Ma Mary who they were. Yaden and Barnwell Rett, Jr. They abused the council roundly, and my husband's name arrested my attention. Afterward, when Yaden attacked Mr. Chestnut, Mr. Chestnut surprised him by knowing beforehand all he had to say. Naturally, I had repeated the loud interchange of views I had overheard in the corridor. First, Nathan Davis called. Then Gonzales, who presented a fine, soldierly appearance in his soldier clothes, and the likeness to Beauregard was greater than ever. Nathan, all the world knows, is by profession a handsome man. General Gonzales told us what in the bitterness of his soul he had written to Jeff Davis. He regretted that he had not been his classmate, then he might have been as well treated as Northrop. In any case, he would not have been refused a brigadiership, citing General Trapier and Tom Drayton. He had worked for it, had earned it. They had not. To his surprise, Mr. Davis answered him, and in a sharp note of four pages. Mr. Davis demanded from whom he quoted, not his classmate. General Gonzales responded, from the public voice only. Now he will fight for us all the same, but go on demanding justice from Jeff Davis until he gets his dues. At least, until one of them gets his dues, for he means to go on hitting Jeff Davis over the head whenever he has a chance. I am afraid, said I, you will find it a hard head to crack. He replied in his flowery Spanish way, Jeff Davis will be the sun, radiating all light, heat, and patronage. He will not be a moon reflecting public opinion, for he has the soul of a despot. He delights to spite public opinion. See, people abused him for making Crittenden brigadier. Straightway he made him major general, and just after a blundering, besotted defeat, too. 
Also, he told the president in that letter, Napoleon made his generals after great deeds on their part, and not for having been educated at Saint-Cyr or Brie or the Polytechnique, etc., etc. Nathan Davis sat as still as a Sioux warrior, not an eyelash moved. And yet he said afterward that he was amused while the Spaniard railed at his great namesake. Gonzales said, Mrs. Slidell would proudly say that she was a Creole. They were such fools, they thought Creole meant. Here Nathan interrupted pleasantly. At the St. Charles in New Orleans, on the bill of fare were Creole eggs. When they were brought to a man who had ordered them, with perfect simplicity, he held them up. Why, they are only hen's eggs, after all. What in heaven's name he expected them to be, who can say? smiled Nathan the Elegant. One lady says, as I sit reading in the drawing-room window while Ma Mary puts my room to rights, I clothe my negroes well. I could not bear to see them in dirt and rags. It would be unpleasant to me. Another lady, Yes, well, so do I, but not fine clothes, you know. I feel, now, it was one of our sins as a nation, the way we indulged them in sinful finery. We will be punished for it. Last night Mrs. Pickens met General Cooper. Madame knew General Cooper only as our adjutant general and Mr. Mason's brother-in-law. In her slow, graceful, impressive way, her beautiful eyes eloquent with feeling, she inveighed against Mr. Davis's wickedness in always sending men born at the North to command at Charleston. General Cooper is on his way to make a tour of inspection there now. The dear general settled his head on his cravat with the aid of his forefinger. He tugged rather more nervously with the something that is always wrong inside of his collar, and looked straight up through his spectacles. Someone crossed the room, stood back of Mrs. Pickens, and murmured in her ear, General Cooper was born in New York. Sudden silence. Dined with General Cooper at the Prestons. General Hampton and Blanton Duncan were there also, the latter a thoroughly free and easy Western man, handsome and clever, more audacious than either, perhaps. He pointed to Buck, Sally Buchanan Campbell Preston. What's that girl laughing at? Poor child, how amazed she looked. He bade them not despair, all the nice young men would not be killed in the war, there would be a few left. For himself, he could give them no hope, Mrs. Duncan was uncommonly healthy. Mrs. Duncan is also lovely. We have seen her. End of chapter 11, part 2